0: Ay, qué hambre. ¿Pasamos por McDonald's? Va. ¿Qué ordenas normalmente? Mm, una quarter pounder. Ah, eres una burger person. Llenos <ríe> McNuggets. Ah, eres de las mías. <ríe> el La mejor manera de conocer a alguien deal de McDonald's. Ordena por anticipado por el app de McDonald's y llévate dos de tus favoritos, como un McNugget de 10 piezas y una quarter pounder por solo 6 dólares. Precios y participación pueden variar, producto individual a precio regular. Calcaterra, Stephen Goldman, Frank Garrity, Lincoln Mitchell, and Tova Wang.
1: Welcome to State and Contagious with Lincoln Mitchell, Tova Wang, Frank Garrity, and myself, Adrian Burgos. Today, we have a special guest, the curator of a brand new exhibit at the Smithsonian National Museum. Her name is Dr. Margie Salazar Porzio. And she's the curator of Latinx History and Culture in the Division of Culture and Community Life at the Smithsonian. She has just curated the play ball in the barrios and big leagues. It's a wonderful exhibit on Latinos in baseball, but that's not her only experience. She's been doing a number of projects at the Smithsonian. She has co-curated Many Voices, One Nation, which came out as an exhibit in 2017. She is also an author and she co-authored the accompanying book for playball with yours truly, Adrian Burgos, and also Robin Moray. Play ball is currently opened. You can go and see it at the National Museum in Washington, DC. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. The experience of Latinos in baseball, the experience of putting together a exhibit on Latinos, latinas in baseball. So please. Thank you, Margie, for joining us, and uh, welcome aboard.
2: Thanks so much, Adrian, and, and team for having me. I'm really excited to be here with you.
1: So I will lead off, and then, then we'll uh, go through our lineup asking you questions. So the Playball exhibit just opened this month at the National Museum of American History in D.C. What is the importance of having this exhibit focus on Latinos in baseball at the Smithsonian? And what does this exhibit mean for our nation at this political moment?
2: Um, You know, that's a great question. Um, As we know, Hispanics and Latinos currently comprise about 18% of the population. Um, And Latinos and Latinas from all different backgrounds have played an integral part in America's history since its founding. So, you know, their stories, our stories, contributions or sacrifices They really deserve a place in Washington, D.C. that honors and showcases these, you know, important parts of our shared our shared history. Um, And, you know, baseball is such a great example of how to bring people together. Um, In particular, at the Smithsonian, um, you know, this is a really important story to tell for a number of reasons. Um, You know, we welcome millions of tourists and residents each year, Um, maybe not last year, but in a normal year, we uh, welcome around five million visitors who come to the National Museum of American History. Um, we are known as the People's Museum. And so, you know, our mission is really broad. It's the increase in diffusion of knowledge. Um, but, you know, we, we try to educate and and provide access to information and historical knowledge. We try to um, do this in a way that helps to strengthen democratic institutions. Um, and, you know, we hope that as part of this, we are able to inform and engage you know public opinion and debate so so all of this it means that that baseball and and Latinos and this history of Latinos in baseball can be part of that um, and then you know I'd also say that historically particularly at the Smithsonian Latinos have been largely underrepresented um in terms of staff collections and exhibitions um you know back in 1994 our my colleagues um in the Latino working committee um they Published a report with the Washington Post called "Willful Neglect," um, and you know it showed that the Smithsonian had dramatically and even willfully, as the title suggests, um, left out the contributions of, um, Amer- of um, American Latinos. Um, and you know, although I would say that that the Smithsonian Latino Center has made a lot of, of strides. Um, you know, and it was established as, as a result of willful neglect. Um, you know, it's really important for us to continue to include these stories and to make sure that um, there's significant representation in our halls. Um, so, you know, it's, uh, play ball in particular is is exciting because after this exhibit, all other exhibits at the National Museum of American History are meant to be bilingual. And so this is uh, you know, also a, a groundbreaking exhibition in that way. So yeah, I could go on.
1: <laughs> well, that's pretty huge. I didn't realize that like we're pioneering with this exhibit, Play Ball, the bilingual angle to the National Museum's uh, exhibits.
2: Yeah. And, you know, there have been other Latino um, exhibits, um, you know, on um, uh, in a number of ways. And those have been bilingual, but it's never really been like a a mandate. And now it's actually, you know, a mandate after this exhibit, all other new exhibits that open will be bilingual. And, uh, you know, our colleagues are um, are working really hard to make that happen. Um, It's hard, um, you know, because we we realize that we need people who. Um, You know, more people who speak Spanish, more people who um, can edit Spanish labels and uh, and more people who, you know, um, are able to kind of design exhibits in this way. Um, You know, it's hard in in um, in history exhibits in particular because we include so much information. So, you know, we don't want to put a book on the wall, um, (laughs) but we want to make sure that, um, you know, we have the labels that reflect um, uh, both English and Spanish.
3: You know, Marty. So you've already sort of laying out some of the interventions that the that the exhibit is, is, is making. Uh, this groundbreaking work that you've been doing for for some time. That you know, all exhibits take a while, and I know this one has too. One of the things that I've seen, I haven't seen the exhibit yet, but I'm familiar with the project, and, and I'm I'm also I saw some videos just from the virtual launch. Is that I think you successfully you seem to successfully convey the kind of love of the game with, you know, as not just a story of being a fan of a team, but like as a story of community, right? Uh, and I couldn't help but think that, you know, this 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 clearly must come from also just your own experience with baseball. So perhaps you could talk about that just in your, you know, what is your baseball story and how did you become a fan or what's your relationship to the game and does that sort of show up in some way in the exhibit?
2: Yeah. Um, well, you know, this is definitely a personal and a professional pursuit. Um, I, I played a little growing up, but mostly, you know, I, I come from a baseball loving family And, uh, you know, I, I remember finding community through baseball. Um, I'm part Mexican and part Japanese and I'm from LA and, uh, I just remember, you know, the stands at my brother's baseball games being kind of the spot where everyone just enjoyed being together, regardless of where you were from. Um, and, you know, full disclosure, my family, um, is full of Dodger fans
4: the Dodgers are my third favorite National League team in California.
2: Yeah. <laughs> don't say it. Like, you cannot help yourself. <laughs> I, your third favorite in California. Oh, my.
4: <laughs> the third favorite National League team, my fifth favorite overall Major League Baseball team. <laughs>
2: um, well, yeah. So, you know, don't tell my brothers that. They, they bleed Dodger blue. Um, <laughs> but you know, when there's a Dodger game on, we were either at the game, um, you know, in the Chicano section at Dodger stadium, or we were watching it on TV. Um, and you know, when they lost, it was just uh, a sad day in the Salazar household. So, um, you know, those are the moments that stick with me today. Baseball has always been about family and community for me. And that's, that's one of the things I really wanted to convey.
5: Well, I want to take advantage of the fact that I have seen the exhibit. Not only have I seen the exhibit, I have read the accompanying book. I have a baseball t shirt of the uh, exhibit, which you can't see, but is fabulous. Um, and it was great. It's so interesting. And I, I just want to lift up the fact that there is a lot about women in the game, Latinas in the game, and a lot of the groundbreaking um, moments of Latinas in the game, which you don't always see. Um, and I know also from reading the book, particularly, that this has, this has been coming together for years, that you and Adrian and others have been working on this for years and have sort of gone around the country listening to different people and different groups about their experiences as Latinos and their relationship with baseball. And I just wondered if there were any particular stories or moments that really jumped out at you as particularly meaningful. Um, so that's
2: that's one question I had coming out of the exhibit. Well, I mean, you know, the the women's story in particular, I think, is something that sets Flewell apart from other displays on um, baseball. Um, You know, most people think of baseball as a man sport. um, But, you know, women have been there every step of the way. They've given their time, talent and treasure in support of the game, um, in support of their communities. Um, You know, obviously they have been players. But they've also been fans. They've also made their, you know, they've created their own teams. They've sewn patches. They cared for children. Um, they sold concessions. They made food and uniforms. You know, they've they've done all of these things. And one of the things that I thought was really really interesting was, um, you know, we've we kind of found a number of scrapbooks. Um, And a lot of them were records kept by women. You know, Um, they kept these these scrapbooks um, for their male counterparts so that these histories and and their careers might live and be remembered. Um, And so, you know, they they did that. and, And as a historian, that's very exciting to me that they kind of created this archive for us. Um, but it's invisible work, you know. It's it's invisible work that these women did, so that you know the the men featured in it can can have this place. And so we were really looking for women's stories, and um, we found a number of really amazing ones. I mean, we feature a woman named um, Marge Villa Crean, um, who's widely known as Marge Villa, um, played for the All American Girls Professional Baseball League. We talk about Jessica Mendoza, who's a an Olympian and now ESPN broadcaster, and we talk about Linda Alvarado, who you know. Um, was the first Latina to to win a bid on a major league franchise with the Colorado Rockies. So, um, you know, we've, we've unearthed a number of stories um, or maybe not unearthed, but, you know, presented a number of stories of women. Um, but those scrapbooks, just they stand out to me. And, and one of the things that, um, that I thought was really fantastic is at the end of the exhibit, when you um, exit um, there is a scrapbook that was made for Jessica Mendoza when she was playing in Athens Uh, in 2004. And she helped, you know, Team USA go on to win the gold. Um, And it was her husband to be, he was um, kind of wooing her. And he made her a scrapbook of her Olympic uh, career in 2004. And so we have that in the exhibit. And I just love it because most of the scrapbooks are actually made by women. But this one was made by a man for, you know, the woman he loved. (laughs) So I thought that was um, a pretty cool object.
4: I'm really struck by this. I haven't had a chance to see the exhibit yet because I don't get to Washington too often, although I was there a couple of weeks, maybe a month or so ago now. Um, but we are at this moment in America, in American history right now, where we are really fighting over our history, right? I mean, they're really, we are really fighting over how much of the story we want to tell and how honest we want to be. And I'm curious how you see this exhibit and your work perhaps more broadly fitting into that that that
2: discourse. Right. Um well, I mean, you know, this, this is a game and a story that has been part of Latino history and culture and communities in every state and territory of the United States. Um, and, you know, just to kind of go back to um, an earlier part of the conversation, um, we were working with communities over six years. Um, and, and so we found over and over again that people would be telling these kind of similar stories, um, you know, whether they were from Southern California or from Colorado or Florida or Massachusetts And so, you know, over and over again, we heard about how uh, about love of baseball, about like, you know, how it was a generation to generation um, sport, um, how it helped local communities kind of grapple with racism and discrimination. Um, And we identified these themes with communities So it ended up being, you know, I I really fundamentally believe history happens locally, but these hyper-local stories, these community stories were not only pieces of a larger puzzle, they were like microcosms of larger national trends. And so through them, I think we're able to kind of piece together some of the some of these stories that haven't necessarily been told before. Um, and, and, you know, I think that one of the, the things that um, is really exciting is that these are the kinds of stories that are feeding into the future Smithsonian National Museum of the American Latino, which, you know, is hopefully <laughs> forthcoming in probably the next decade. Um, but I think that, you know, that that is is a, a super significant piece to, to say, well, we are part of the the building blocks of this um and we're part of you know establishing that community stories matter that you know all of these um you know places regardless of where you're from um you know they they can all kind of come together into this lovely um package um talking about latinos and baseball and how how um, multiple people from all over the country have experienced um what it means to be latino and what it means to be american
1: just to follow up on that cuz um you mentioned about the stories in places like Colorado and Wyoming so we have the work of uh, Gabrielle and and jody Lopez and on uh, the Greeley grays um, what What was it like gathering those stories and getting out into the field and and hearing from these local historians and and curators of that history
2: um I'd have to say that's the my favorite part of my job <laughs> um, you know I met so many amazing people um, I met. So uh, and heard so many um, amazing stories. Um, none of this would have been possible without communities and um, local scholars, independent scholars, and, um, and you know, scholars from all over being willing to share their stories and being willing to share some of their research, um, being so generous with their time. Um, I loved hearing about, um, about them because um, really this is, This is their passion, you know, Um, and this is where, you know, maybe they didn't have, um, you know, all of the resources that the Smithsonian has, but they were able to document hundreds in terms of, you know, Gabriel and Jody Lopez. They documented hundreds of oral histories and they learned on the spot to do that. You know, um, they, they were kind of working with a local, um, history museum to try to, um, document some of these stories. Um, and, uh, you know, they kind of didn't know where to start, um, but they persevered and they collected a number of amazing resources. And one of my favorite parts is, um, like, you know, I, I went to visit Gabe and Jody in Colorado and they showed me this, um, you know, amazing collection that they had um, brought together. And, um, you know, at the time it was kind of, it was presented in their garage because they they were storing it, but they didn't have an, a better place for it. And so their garage was great. Um, and they invited um, community members over. So we had like a, a nice little, um, you know, <laughs> uh, gathering there. Um, and then they handed over to me um, this like terabyte of information, as like you know, a gift in in such a spirit of community and generosity that I, I just can't even um, begin to tell you. You know, there were tears in my eyes, and 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 they said, okay, now we're handing it over to we're handing over all this information to you so that you can use it as you need to. Um, and um, it was it was so incredible. And I got back to the museum and I plugged it in my computer. And it was so much, <laughs> they, they built an incredible archive, but I didn't even know where to start. Um, you know, and, and because they're independent scholars, there were things about it where, um, you know, I was looking for a certain image and I'd have to call Gabe and I'd be like, Gabe, Hey, where do I find that image of, of this one player? And, and, you know, I would describe it and he'd say, Oh, I know where that one is. Um, it's under, you know, this, this folder. Um, and, but it would be, it, it would be called um, things like, the nickname of the player that, you know, (laughs) I don't know the nickname of the player. (laughs) Um, And so, so, you know, I'd have to call him, um, you know, repeatedly and he was so patient with me, but, you know, even though those interactions and that relationship, building that relationship was just so fabulous and, and, you know, definitely one of the favorite parts of my job. The genius of of the project is like
3: this, this, what I see is what we've been talking about so far is that looking at the local grassroots level, the role of baseball, the central role, the important role that baseball played in Latinx communities in this country. And yet you also make a point of, you know, mentioning the the legends that baseball fans are familiar with, the Roberto Clementes, or, you know, he may not be in the exhibit, but certainly people think of, you know, what happened just in the recent All-Star game, Vladimir Guerrero Jr., right? So in other words, for baseball fans, they often, they know about the legends, perhaps, or the All-Stars, but you really are showing the kind of depths of the game in these communities right and so but at the same time you also want to make those linkages to the to the legends. so I was curious to how you folks figured out that balance how do you touch on the folks who are well known in major league baseball Negro league baseball history or Latin American baseball history and, and yet you know also you know combine this community aspect which is clearly the thrust of, of the exhibit
2: well you know that that's a great point because um, we we knew from the very beginning that this was going to be um, a a community-driven exhibit that we were going to, you know, take the lead of communities, but we were also going to make sure that that was the focus. But then you can't tell a story about Latino baseball without talking about Roberto Clemente, without talking about Fernando Valenzuela, without talking about these legends, um, Martin the Eagle, um, you know, in the past, and then Pedro Martinez. More recently, like you know, you have to have these these people, right? And and so um, we, we realized early on that, that we would have to include these things and these would be things that people would be looking for and rightfully so, but, um, but we would include their stories in a way that, that really focuses on their community involvement so we wanted to make sure that, like, we focused on on where they also connected with, you know, their communities that they came from. So, like, for example, with Roberto Clemente, um, we have, instead of his um, Pirates jersey up, we have um, his San Juan Senadores jersey um, in, on display. Because um, not only was it the last jersey that he wore before his untimely death, but it was the jersey that he wore every, you know, season for multiple seasons, um, when he'd go back and play in Puerto Rico for the Winter League, um, and he would, you know, often go back and do clinics for kids, and you know, um, obviously he um, he died in a um, a philanthropic mission to Nicaragua, and so we focus on those those moments of community where he is actually this incredible figure. Um, of community and um, you know um, we have this great quote um, from Pedro Martinez saying that nobody accomplished what Roberto Clemente accomplished in terms of being this legend in the game and in the community. So, so those are the stories that we try to focus on trying to bring these major league players that are legends kind of down to the down to the ground again <laughs> to, to where they, they came back to um, you know their families and communities.
0: 911 what's your emergency?
6: Una camioneta, una camioneta que se cruzan las vías y el tren. Ay, Dios mío.
3: Señora, me está diciendo que hay un tren le pego a una camioneta?
6: Sí. Yo pensé que que sería cruzar, él ¡eh! iba rápido, creo y después. Ay, Dios mío, qué horror. No puedes saber a qué velocidad viene un tren. Por eso están los señalamientos de advertencia. Obédecelos. Alto, el tren no para.
3: Mensaje de Netsa.
5: So, yes, actually, you asked exactly the question I was going to ask, because it seemed to me that the way that you organized um, the exhibit, there was the community stuff. And then in terms of the um, professional players, it sort of went from one pivotal player to the next in the Latino community, um, going from Mini Manoso to to Pedro, Um, which, you know, yes, I, I love Pedro, actually, even though I'm a Yankees fan. Um, and I'm wondering just to take it to the present, <laughs> what do you think the role is of baseball in Latino communities at the local level? And then also at the you know the national level, where because it seems like maybe now it's more resonant in the Latino community than the broader American you know, c- American community. And I, just as a, a second part of that, one of the things that we've come up come to see just even the last week in this All Star week. Is issues of language translation. And we've talked a lot on this program about, on this podcast about um, how Latinos in baseball get stereotyped and singled out in all sorts of ways. And so I'm wondering how the the, the history that you um, put together for the exhibit and for the book, which is excellent, now relates to what's happening now. Is Tatis or somebody like that
2: after come after Pedro? Or, you know, where are we now? Right. There are a couple parts to that question. So, um I think I'll start at the top which um I you kind of allude to, but um you know, the the popularity of baseball in many places seems to be waning. Um, however, with Latino communities, it's not, it's actually growing in popularity. And so that's very exciting. Um, you know, and, and Latinos in the major leagues are around 30%. Um, so there's this outsized impact within major league baseball. Um, but, but I think that, you know, it's, it's really exciting to Latino fans to kind of claim baseball as a Latino space, um, and, uh, you know, this has happened uh, little by little over the 20th century, for sure. Um, and, and I would say that, that even today that, that baseball is still an important part of Latino communities. Even though, also, you know, soccer is an important part, and and you know, uh, there there are other sports that I'm I'm sure you know loom large, but um, but I would say that um, those things don't have to be mutually exclusive. You can be a baseball fan and a soccer fan, and and you know, it doesn't mean that because they love soccer they don't love baseball. So, um, so I think that you know, um, baseball is still really important in Latino communities. Um, And in terms of language translation, I mean, you know, we can. I, I I've been thinking about this so much um particularly because for, for multiple reasons you know we there are so many issues with um with Spanish translation and language um that we've encountered at the Smithsonian as, as I think kind of like a um a, a version of the same Um, because, you know, we're trying to figure out how to, how to make everything bilingual from here on out. Right. And, and so that means that, um, you know, uh, when we were writing our labels and, um, we had them translated professionally because, um, all the Spanish speakers could not agree on a translation. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so we were kind of arguing over like little nuances in the language. Oh, I wouldn't say it that way. Or, you know, and, um, and especially with um, bilingual baseball terminology, you know, baseball is, it, you know, all the terminology is in English first, and so you know, obviously there is terminology that that we still use like um, strike and, and out and foul, but um, but going through kind of like all of the different terms that come from all the different um, you know places, it, it was uh, it, it was kind of fun and at the same time daunting, you know. Um, and we decided, okay, well, we would really like to have um, someone from Puerto Rico do the translation. Um, we thought that that was a, a really important um, you know decision for us. And then um, when it came down to editing, um, we did kind of like a little brochure for the exhibit as we were trying to fundraise um, first before we did the book and we did the labels. And in that little brochure, which was like six pages, um, we spent hours and hours <laughs> nitpicking over the Spanish translation. And we were like, oh no, this is not going to work. We need to have a Spanish language translator so that there's one voice and you know one authority so that we can all kind of defer to this person. And, and actually, Adrian introduced us to Clemson Smith-Muñiz, who uh, uh, was fabulous and worked with us um, very patiently um, and also incredibly knowledgeable about baseball um, uh, and Latino baseball over many years. And so... So, um, you know, those are the things that we were really conscious about and became conscious about. Um, And then for the Smithsonian, everything takes so long. (laughs) And um, so, not only does everything take so long, but then um, to build in extra time for translation and then extra time for like the editing of the Spanish translation. Um, you know, we ended up having to finish the exhibit and the book like months ahead of all the other projects that, you know, were also, um, on the docket at, at American history, because we were like, this has to be bilingual and we have to do it right. And so, um, so, you know, that that kind of, um, <laughs> I, I feel like that is like language in a nutshell. <laughs> um, and, you know, when you think about all the players who are coming and who are, you know, trying to like suffer through like not knowing the language and not having a translator and not, you know, um, being able to express themselves, like, you know, th- we were going through these little nuances of the language and I can just imagine like how they're feeling every day You know, um, it's it's hard, and uh, I think it's so necessary that we that we all try to make sure that um, we're all conscious and and vigilant about it.
1: That's such a great point you're making, Margie, in thinking about you work with words, you work with text, and there's such a discussion around language and translation. The ball players are paid to strike people out, to hit home runs, to like that's not really their job to work with words and text and. Yeah, there's this big concern about translation and mistranslation, miscommunication. So if us professional writers, historians, scholars, you know, are dealing with that, then much more them.
4: Lincoln, you had a question as well. I'm really struck by your discussion, both of the exhibit and also your exp- your experience doing the research and putting the exhibit together, which is that, stop me if I'm wrong, but, but it seems like you're really trying to do at least several things here, one of which is tell the story of the Roberto Clementes, the, the Juan Marshalls, and that kind of thing. But also that to be a baseball fan and, and to place baseball in the context of Latino history in the U.S. goes far beyond MLB. And there's so many ways to appreciate and, and, and love the game. And, and I wonder if you could talk about that. But then I had one quick issue on language as a non-Spanish speaker is that today is the 75th birthday of a famous Mexican-American singer, Linda Ronstadt, Right. Who has given, from my view, my my favorite English language baseball phrase, which is the Linda Ronstadt fastball, because it it blew by you, and and I so there must be lots of those kind of idioms in Spanish, and how does that get translated, and how you know kind of dealing with the with the baseball language that only the fans or the players know, you know, can of corn that kind of thing.
2: Oh my goodness! Um, <laughs> so I I have to say that I kind of forgot the first part of the question because um, you struck me with with Linda Linda Ronstadt. <laughs> Um, but I, I, think you were getting at, um, that, you know, this, this is, um, this is a history beyond kind of like Jackie Robinson breaking the color line in 1947. And, um, and, and I think that ultimately that, that is, is, is kind of an interesting pivot point where we start in a way, because, um, up until that point, um, you know, most Latinos were not able to play in the major leagues. And so they made their own leagues and they did their own thing and they played internationally and they played in the Negro leagues and they did what they could. Um, and, and they incorporated into their daily lives. Um, they incorporated it into their work lives. Um, sometimes they made a living by playing the game, but most of the time, um, you know, maybe they were supported by a local church or a local community, um, group or, or, um, a, a small business or something like that, or their own, um, their own place of work. Um, and so, you know, that's where they experienced baseball and that's where they made community. And that's, um, why it became such an integral part of their lives. Um, and then even after 1947, um, baseball was slow to integrate. So it was, um, it was really an experience in communities. Um, baseball really became one of those, um, one of those really important kind of, um, spaces where people could express their athleticism, where they could, um, communicate with each other. Um, I, one of my favorite stories to tell one of my favorite people, um, that I, um, interviewed, um, was actually, um, Esther Hernandez. Um, she's a really well-known artist, um, in the Chicano movement. Um, she did Chicano graphics and prints and silkscreens. Um, one of her most famous is the sun mad raisins, um, where there's the calaco or calavera maiden. Um, anyway, um, you know, she also did this amazing um, painting of a woman catcher playing softball. And so, you know, I really wanted to collect it. Um, it turns out it actually lives at Stanford. So um, it was donated there years ago and I missed my opportunity. Um, <laughs> but I went out to San Francisco to interview her and asked what baseball meant to her. And she was incredibly insightful. Um, she talked about these women barrio teams. Um, she talked about how they, you know, created how baseball. Um, offered a really rich social space um, for women to, um, and, and, you know, a socially acceptable uh, space for women to express their athleticism, to find friendships and to sometimes choose a partner. Um, So she told me this like fantastic story about how women, um, would go to the men's games, the men's team's games, and they'd watch kind of how the men handled themselves. Like, did they get angry? Did, they, you know, did they throw the bat? Uh, were they patient? Were they yelling profanities at the umpire? Um, you know, and, and then the men would go to the women's games and they'd look for the same thing. And so it was this fabulous, like, kind of community dance, this, like, back and forth, where, you know, maybe gender roles were reified, but also where Latinas and Latinos were able to really kind of perform for each other. They were able to woo each other. They were able to establish new and lasting relationships. And um, and this was, you know, not something that, um, you know, was outside of mainstream. So So it was like that kind of like community aspect of baseball that really drove it home for me that this is more than a major league story, that it has to be um, featured as more than a major league story, I think there was another part. <laughs> Sorry,
3: <laughs> Lincoln is the master of the three to four part question. You throw it with the Linda Ronstadt. The Linda Ronstadt. The no,
4: but I, I was asking a serious question, which is that there must be Spanish language idioms that non-Spanish about ba- regarding in baseball idioms with with which non-Spanish speakers are not familiar, and and how do you? incorporate that as you think about the translate?
2: Yes, there are. Um, I, I think though that, you know, um, baseball is a, um, is an English sport and or it was an English first sport. And so a lot of the idioms from English then how they're translated into Spanish was one of the things that we uh, encountered a lot. Uh, you know, like the, um, the um, dugout is like cueva, the cave, um, the, um, you know, a home run is either a or quadrangular, like, you know, which sounds very geometric to me, like you hit the four <laughs> corners, of all the bases. Right. Um, and, and so like, those were the things that like in the translation were really interesting. There are definitely like a lot of I mean, just in our general language, there's a lot of baseball idioms. Like, you know, you um, you make a home run. Um, you know, you strike out. Um, you're that came out of left field. You know, stuff like that. Um, that when you're talking about the the Spanish translation, it doesn't always you know translate. Like, you know, coming out of left field. Like we were talking about, like the outfield, and the outfield is often called you know jardín, the garden. So then it's like, how does it translate to? <laughs> Uh, jardin or, or, you know, the outfielders, jardineros, um, like the gardeners, like how do you actually say it's out of, you know, out of the outfield <laughs> um, when it's, it out of the garden? You know, so we were, we were really kind of um, piecing through that. Um, not as much, to be honest, in, in the other direction. Um, but I know that there are a lot of, of Spanish idioms that we kind of unearthed and that we looked up and that we've included in our learning lab materials.
1: One of the things as you were asking that question, Lincoln, and, and Margie was responding, reminded me of some current examples because of so many Latinos in baseball today. And actually some of the non-Latino ballplayers are picking up the expressions. Um, uh, I was covering a Red Sox game a number of years ago, about two years ago. Um, it was when Big Papi's was, number was being retired. But I, I was listening before the game to they're taking batting practice. And Christian uh, Vasquez, the catcher on the Red Sox, was saying pa la calle," and with it's like you know a home run or hitting it out of the park, but you know it literally means you know to the street. And yet, a bunch of the Red Sox players I saw this year are wearing T-shirts that says pa la calle," and they were wearing them for batting practice. So you know that's one of the ways we see that influence. Some um, way back when um, there was the expression loboto. That, that again, it means a home run, but there's really no direct English translations to that directly. Um, But these expressions catch on, and and I see more of late that some of the non-Latino players will pick up and join in on that fun. Um, There's this other story that it's told in the book, Playball, and and we got it from Kansas City. And when you were mentioning about how the community becomes such an important space, uh, Gene Chavez and others talked about how they built their own ballpark in Kansas City because basically local segregation. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that story of, of uh, Mexican-Americans and the Latino community in Kansas City?
2: Sure. Um, actually, it, it's it's such an interesting story and it um, spans generations. So basically, um, GIs returning from the Second World War, Mexican GIs returning to Kansas City, they wanted to join the local American Legion post um, mostly because they wanted to play baseball on the American Legion post team. And uh, the American Legion post was an all white post and they said, no Mexicans allowed. So um, these GIs said, Hey, we just fought for our country. We're as American as you are, you know, we can have our own American Legion post then. And, you know, (laughs) basically like forget you. Um, And so they created their own American Legion post. And they called it the Eagle's Nest. And one of the first things um, about the post was they created a baseball uh, diamond, you know, a a whole field. And, you know, they played on that field all the time. It was um, in the um, Latino neighborhoods. Um, And, um, you know, they... They are still around, but the original post that refused them access is no longer it went defunct. It's no longer there. So I think that's an interesting piece. Um, But um, the other part about it is that, you know, um, a generation later, um, we found this amazing story from this um, gentleman named Chris Gonzalez, um, and he played on the Eagles Nest team. He um, was an incredible player um, and, um, you know, Mexican-American and wanted to, um, you know, continue the tradition of his of his father and, and you know, his family. And, um, you know, so he he played. And at one point, the um, Royals, the Kansas City Royals, they donated a number of, um, you know, some equipment, the, um, a number of things to the Mexican team, had the Eagle's Nest, and uh, and Chris found these cleats, and he had he really needed cleats, and so he put them on and wore them every day for the rest of his career. And he was you know doing amazing things on on the on the field, but those cleats were two sizes too small, and so at the end of every game, he'd have to take out like peel off the shoes and get his friends like the other players to kind of step on his feet to like shape them back, like, you know, make them flat again. Cause they, you know, his, his uh, toes had curled and, and, um, and so, you know, he, he tells the story um, when we were interviewing him and he's like, yeah, you know, it was, it was nothing, you know, I just, <laughs> I just, you know, needed cleats and I, and these were the best ones. And so I wore them and, uh, and he made do with what he had. Um, and, and I just cannot imagine playing baseball for years in cleats that are two sizes too small. I mean, cleats are hard, you know, they are hard shoes. (laughs) And anyway, so, so it's these incredible stories though, where it's really clear that like, you know, you don't have a ball, you make a ball, you don't have a bat, you get creative. You know Um, we have, we found so many communities where they handcrafted baseballs um, or, or, you know, softball gear, um, and it's it's definitely been a tradition found across Latino communities um, uh, in the United States and across the Americas. Um, and you know, it, most people would rather play with make, makeshift equipment than not play at all. So you know, we we are excited whenever we see those because uh, those stories because they often um, come with really unique, handcrafted, down home community um, objects.
0: If you're looking for a credit card that fits your lifestyle, look no further. U.S. Bank has credit cards that make every day rewarding, no matter what you're into. Feeling hungry? Check out the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. Earn four times points on takeout, food delivery, and dining. And get two times points at gas stations, grocery stores, and on streaming. That'll keep your wallet and your mouth full. Big spender? The U.S. Bank Visa Platinum Card has a low intro APR for large purchases or balance transfers. And you call the shots with the U.S. Bank Cash Plus Visa Signature Card. Choose two categories each quarter. Earn 5% back on your first $2,000 of eligible purchases for those categories. So don't just get a credit card. Get the right card to make every day more rewarding. Cashback, merchandise, travel rewards, and low intro APRs are all waiting. Learn more at usbank.com slash credit card. The creditor and issuer of these cards is U.S. Bank National Association. Pursuant to a license of Visa USA, Inc. And the cards are available to the United States residents only. Some restrictions may apply. Member FDIC. FDIC.
6: Se siente bien saber que cuando le pones sirope a tu big breakfast with the hot cakes de McDonald's, tú controlas dónde cae. Primero se acerca a tu biscuit y rodea la salchicha, luego llega a tus hash browns y finalmente a tus huevos revueltos, dándoles ese sabor dulce del maple. Ordena por anticipado en el lab de McDonald's y que fluya el sirope. Para pa. pa, pa, pa. Móvil Order and Pay in McDonald's participantes, gira la descarga y registro.
2: Um,
5: If I can bring it uh, back to the present again, though, some of the stuff, I I can't recommend the book enough because um, if you can't get to the exhibit, it's fascinating, the history and so on. Um, But in the present day, um, there has been a lot of progress. But in terms of the front office and ownership, um, there's still uh, a a great imbalance in the number, especially if you consider the number of Latino players in Major League Baseball And there's also quite a bit in the exhibit about uh, broadcasters and journalists and baseball writers and so on. And um, you talk about Jessica Mendoza. There are several, but really, uh, Adrian has talked about this before, that there are just not that many Latino baseball writers right now. So I'm wondering your reflections on that as well.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's a significant gap. Um, You know, we want to try to, through the exhibit, encourage people, um, young people, to think about this as a career. Um, you know, uh, Chantel from minor league baseball, we had her in an event, um, back in October, uh, play ball now that, um, Adrian moderated and did a fabulous job. Um, <laughs> but she, she specifically said, you know, if you can see it, you can be it. And I remember thinking that's kind of what we're trying to do. If you can see it, you can be it. Like, um, we put Jessica Mendoza there and we, um, have, you know, a, a section on Jaime Harin, um, because we want people to say, oh, wow, these people have done incredible things. And maybe the young people will come through and say, oh, I'd like to do that. <laughs> um, and, you know, we we feature Linda Alvarado because she's a trailblazer and because she's an owner and an incredible, incredible force in baseball and um, and just a wonderful person too. <laughs> um, and so, so we want to show as much as we can these people, but they are the exception. You know, they—they're not the rule. And—and and you're absolutely right that you know players might make up about thirty percent of the rosters, but you know, in terms of owners, managers, and—and um, and the front office, um, it's still—it's still something that needs to to grow. Um, you know, Linda, for her part, she's she has some amazing young Latinas around her who are, you know, managing certain parts and aspects of, of um, you know, the game at, at Rockies um, uh, with the Rockies and, and at the stadium. So um, so I think like the more and more we can get people to to kind of see this as a possibility, the better. And also the more people that kind of are able to go into these roles, um, it's, it's really clear that they make an impact. Little by little, um, around them.
3: Yeah, because they may be they may be absent in mainstream, you, you know, um, media circles. But that you know, but you refer to hiding and and think of Bucanel and other people. I mean, in the history of the game, certainly in in the Caribbean and Mexico, there's a long history of people who've been commenting on the game, writing about it, uh, broadcasting it, et cetera, Right, and so you know, to, to to pull that up from the history is extremely important. I mean, the fact that they're not as present in the in the in the concurrent U.S. baseball media you know, Pedro Gomez who just passed away. I mean, there was like, there's these singular figures, but there's a long history of baseball journalism in the, and certainly in the societies that, that produce these players, no doubt.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. So one,
3: one of the last questions I
1: have, and I'm sure you get this often, but you spent five plus years on this project. And now that it's up, which of the story that's in the exhibit that you're like, I love this story. I'm so glad I have it in there.
2: Oh my gosh, that's such a hard question. You're like asking me to pick my favorite child or something. (laughs) Um, uh, So, you know, there's so many good ones. Um, And, you know, when I think about it, like I love telling the story of Jessica Mendoza. I love telling the story of Marge Villa. I love um, talking about Anthony Rendon and his family. Um, You know, Roberto Clemente obviously is uh, an important story and Fernando Valenzuela. I mean, Fernando was one of our own, so I have, like, a personal attachment to him and his story. Um, you know, I think the story that I actually maybe tell the most is of Marge Villa. Like, I just – I love talking about her for so many reasons. Um, you know, we kind of have the same name, so that's one of the reasons. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm, but but I, I relate to her because um, – she is from Southern California, which is where I'm from. Um, you know, her name is Margaret. My name is Margaret. Um, but, um, you know, I got to meet her and interview her um, in some of the last interviews that she was giving. And she was just a firecracker of a person, an amazing person, fun, fabulous. And, um, you know, I I would I love talking about her. So, you know, she we have um this bright red silk uniform from her from when she was 13 years old. And that uniform is just so fabulous. It's from 1939. It has this like little Peter Pan collar and these cap sleeves. Um, And it's from when she played for like a local community team called the Garvey Stars um, from East Los Angeles. Um, And, you know, I, I love that it's this kind of snapshot of her life Right before she was um, called up to the um, Orange Lionettes, which is a semi-professional team. And she was 16 when she was called up there. And then from there, she was drafted into the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League. Um, And so it's this, like, lovely snapshot of, like, before she could have even known that she would go big time. Um, But, you know, she was not only, you know, one of 11 Latinas to play, um, in the all American girls professional baseball league, but she was an incredible player. She was, um, a record setter. She was a catcher. She also played second base and shortstop. She played more than 500 games with the Kenosha Comets. Um, and, you know, as a rookie, she set the record for nine RBIs and 11 bases in just one game. And I just like love that she was, you know, such a great athlete and set, and, you know, is, is, an unsung hero, you know, like most people don't know about her, but she consulted on the, um, a league of their own. When they put together that movie, she was one of the consultants that they, that they came to, to ask her about like her experience. Um, and then one of the stories that I really like to tell about her is, um, you know, in one of my interviews with her, um, she was telling me about her travels to Cuba, um, and to other Latin American places. Um, and, um, you know, for many of the women on her team, um, this kind of travel was the very first time that they had traveled. It was the first time they had traveled abroad. For some of them, it was the first time they had been on a plane. Um, and so she visited Cuba in 1947 for spring training. Um, and, you know, she like almost immediately became known for her charisma and, and her diplomacy. Um, and she was able to communicate with um, these Cuban diplomats in Spanish and she like you know translated for her teammates, and so I love um, how you know she tells the story about how you know this was this moment where maybe in regular everyday life in Southern California she wasn't so proud of being Mexican American, but in this moment and in you know these international experiences, she became super proud of her heritage. And I was like, oh, you know, I, I can understand that. Like being from California, like, you know, um, there's a long legacy of, of racial discrimination um, of Mexicanos and Mexicanas in particular. And so I, I totally um, like can relate to that history and to, you know, having to go internationally to be to really appreciate where you come from and really appreciate, you know, the fact that she's um, a Mexicana and that she could speak Spanish and and so, um, so I love that story. Um, that's one of my favorites to tell and to, you know, to spread the word about.
6: Yeah, uh,
1: again, Marge's story is um, is fantastic. It's amazing. It's a reminder, like, of dealing with discrimination as uh, she did as a woman, as a Mexicana, um, and that in travel came and travel through baseball and after baseball came the opportunity to gain more insight into her identity. Um, you know, I, I can't, a contemporary of hers took the opposite path, and that is Ted Williams, also from Southern California, also had a Mexican mother, and did not embrace it, hid it, did not become public about it, and then even later on did not really become a voice of, this is our struggle, this is our people. Um, And so it is fascinating to me then how Marge's story as you're recounting it really booms loudly in terms of thinking through the issues of identity, of travel, of movement that baseball and her persona were able to kind of bring out and, and allow us now at the national museum to see.
2: Absolutely. And I think that, you know, Ted Williams is such an interesting story. Um, We, Actually, you know, maybe I'm going to get some hate mail for this, but we decided not to include him um, for that reason. Um, we uh, have a few things at the museum from him and his incredible career. Um, he was an, obviously an amazing player. Um, but when it came down to it, I, um, I thought, you know, he, he never embraced being Latino. So why would we put that in there? <laughs> um, and and so, you know, they, like I, I'm i glad that we, you know, Adrian, in, in your part of the book, you talk about Mel Amada, who, you know, embraced being Mexican and, and who, you know, never hid that. And, and then, um, you know, you have others like, like Ted Williams, who, you know, I, I was just reading this, this story about how he like won some sort of award and came back, um, you know, uh, uh, to his community. Um, and, you know, when he arrived, like on the train or something like that, his family um, was there like to support him. And, and like they had like big banners and he ran away from them. And it's just like those moments where I'm just like, oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> um, obviously, that was his strategy for survival or something. But, um, you know, it was uh, it, that, you know, I can just imagine his abuelita like being rejected. And that makes me really sad.
3: And that just real, just as as we wrap up, I mean, I think that reflects the sensibility of of the exhibit, right? I think in an earlier time, you would go for the big legend name and just grab him and claim in the Hispanic Latino legacy. But because of all the work you've done and all the work that people like Adrian have done and others, you know, there's no need to do that. There are plenty of other folks who as an integral part of uh, the history of baseball in this country and the Americas who, you know, we don't need a Ted Williams figure to make that point. I mean, it, and it sounds like this exhibit is making it very clearly. It sounds like a successful effort. I cannot wait to see it.
2: Oh, well, great. I'm looking forward to having you. Come down and
5: visit.
3: Yes. We'll have to have to convene there. Absolutely.
5: I, I absolutely echo that. And maybe I can just finish it off by asking. So I think what I heard was that it was supposed to be a limited time exhibit at the Smithsonian, but now it's not. And so I'm wondering about the future of the exhibit and whether it will go other places and all of that, because it is these are stories that need to be told.
2: Well, it is um, a limited run at the Smithsonian. It is going to be up for a year. Um, There have been um, whispers of it being extended, but we don't know what that would look like yet. And, you know, there's nothing official at this point, but it is traveling. A version of it is traveling through 2025. So we have a traveling exhibit that um, opened in Saginaw, Michigan. It's now in Pueblo, Colorado. And uh, next in August, it's going to the Negro Leagues Museum in Kansas City. So we're super proud of that. And then um, you know, it, it's continuing on from there through 2025. Um, and we don't actually, we don't travel objects. We're only traveling um, banners that kind of have the framework of the exhibit, but we are encouraging communities and host venues to showcase their own objects and to showcase their community stories Um, So that they can really take center stage and then maybe be a little contextualized by the Smithsonian's um, uh, banners and and framework. So um, we're super excited that it's going to continue on through 2025. um, But the Artifact Rich exhibition will only go through 2022.
5: That's amazing. I just... I know we're running out of time, but, um, you know, one of the things I, I'm really curious about the event at the Negro league museum, because that's a part of this whole story that we didn't get into as much as I would like, but about the experiences that different Latino players had both in the Negro leagues and in the white leagues and really f- struggling their way through both of them and, and trying to be in one or the other and not really being accepted anywhere. Um, so there's a lot to learn about that. Again, it's a lot of it's in the book and I was uh, very interested in all of that. So
2: thank you for all of it. Well, thank you. And, and, you know, I'm excited about the presentation at the Negro Leagues museum too, because I'm sure that I'm going to learn a lot from how they bolster the exhibit with their local um, stories as well. Um, And yeah, it's going to be on display there for three months. It's on display three months at a time. And hopefully we'll have a nice uh, community event around the opening in Kansas City. Um, And I may be in touch with some of you about that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So thank you so much, Margie, for joining us on Sade and Contagious. It's uh, wonderful to uh, hear more stories, uh, even behind the scenes that I didn't know about, um, about the Playball exhibit and your work on it. So thank you for joining us.
2: Thank you so much for having me. This was a pleasure.
6: Wendy's Bacon or Sausage Egg and Swiss Breakfast Croissant for one ninety nine. This hot, buttery croissant is fluffy enough to sleep on. Wakey, wakey! Get a better breakfast for just one ninety nine. Only at
0: Wendy's. Limited time only. U.S. price participation may vary. Third-party delivery prices may vary. Not valid the combo.
6: Si tú y tus amigos ordenan en McDonald's, deja que los demás agarren su comida primero. Yo sé el solo pensar en el olor de las papitas y tener que esperar suena loco. Pero por reglas, y si esperas, entonces las papitas que quedaron en el fondo de la bolsa son tuyas. Ordena por anticipado en el app y disfruta la recompensa de ser paciente. Pa, 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 pa. Móvil orden and pay in los participantes. Regiere la descarga y registro.